We return uh, this morning to our study of this Old Testament book. We took a break uh, last week. Uh, some of you women who are away at the women's retreat may or may not know that, uh, but we took a break uh, from our study and are jumping back in. As we've talked about before, uh, this book of the Bible is called Judges, but it's not really about judges, at least not in the traditional sense of the word. In terms of judges, the Lord is actually the only judge explicitly called judge in this book, and He is judging a people, His people, for forgetting Him and forgetting His ways over and over again. And so verse 1, before I even read it this morning, starts off in a familiar way for us. The people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Judgment followed by deliverance. That's the cycle of this book. The nation of Israel forgets their God. He sells them into the hands of their enemies. They cry out for help. He delivers them, and then the whole process repeats over again. And I hope that you have seen, I hope that I have conveyed that the theme of God's deliverance, of Yahweh's deliverance over these first few chapters, has been unlikely and unexpected. I, the, the song line of Rich Mullins, you never know who God is going to use, a princess or a baby or maybe even you or me. And that certainly has been true as we've looked at these crazy stories and crazy characters in the book of Judges. It's been the stuff of like Bourne movies, and, and two weeks ago it was the stuff of maybe a John Wick movie, a little bit heavier. But today we begin looking at maybe what is or who is the most ordinary, the most relatable deliverer that God chooses to raise up. His name is Gideon. Gideon is the fifth judge in this history, and his account takes up the most space in the entire book, at least in terms of verse count, and so we'll be looking at him for at least this week and next, maybe even beyond that. Uh, but I invite you this morning to listen and to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. Judges chapter 6, you can follow along with the insert found in your bulletin. This is a lengthy passage. I'm going to read it quickly, um, and then we will unpack it together. Listen as I read. This is God's holy word. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents. They would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted so that they laid waste the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. 
When the people of Israel cried to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you, and I drove them out before you and gave you their land, and I said to you, I am the Lord your God, you shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell." but you have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, sir, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you will strike the Midianites as one man. And he said, I, and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come to you and bring out my present and set it before you. And he said, I will stay until you return. And so Gideon went into his house and prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes from an ephah of flour. And he, the meat he put into a basket and the broth he put in a pot. And he brought them out under the terebinth and presented them. And the angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock and pour the broth over them. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he touched the meat and the unleavened cakes, and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it the Lord is peace. To this day it stands at Ophrah, which belongs to the the Ibizrites. That night the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and the second bull seven years old and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the Asherah that is beside it and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here with, with stones laid in due order. Then take the second bull and offer it as a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah and cut it down. So Gideon took ten men of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. But But because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken and the Asherah Beside it was cut down, and the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. 
But Joash said to all who stood against him, Will you contend for Baal, or will you save him? Who, whoever contends for him shall be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him contend for himself, because his altar has been broken down. Therefore, on that day, Gideon was called Jeroboam, that is to say, let Baal contend against him, because he broke down his altar. Now all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east came together and they crossed the Jordan and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon and he sounded the trumpet and the Abizrites were, and the Bizrites were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh and they too were called out to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali and they went up to meet him. Then Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early next morning and squeezed the fleece, he wrung enough dew from the fleece to fill a bowl with water. And Gideon said to God, let not your anger burn against me. Let me speak just once more. Please let me test just once more with the fleece. Please let it be dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, let there be dew. And God did so that night. And it was dry on the fleece only. And on all the ground, there was dew. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Long passage, I know. Thanks for bearing with me. I wanted us to get at least the big picture of this chunks of this chunk of Gideon's life and his story as recorded for us in the scriptures. Yes, this is a story about Gideon. But I kind of regret this morning choosing the sermon title that I did, Reluctant Deliverer, you see there in your bulletin, even though it's a true description of Gideon. He was indeed a reluctant deliverer. I regret choosing it though because I don't want the focus, our focus, to be on him. Like those judges that we've already looked at, Gideon is not the hero of this story. Even though he is the hero of the Veggie Tale movie that stars him. I think it's Gideon the tuba player against the angry pickles or something. As I've said before, it's the faithfulness of God. It's the forgetfulness of man. It's the longing and need for a true and lasting and eternal deliverer. These are the big themes of the book of Judges, themes that we return to over and over again. All these stories point to these themes. And so why then are we preaching through the book of Judges? Why am I preaching through the book of Judges. Well, I think it's worth slowing down because through these fallible men and women, we learn not necessarily to emulate them, but we learn more about the God of grace who shepherded them in their walks of faith, in their lives of faith. And so this morning, I want us to once again 
Not see Gideon so much, but see the God who Gideon served, the God who we gather to worship this morning. We've got a good two-point theme going on in this series, so we're going to keep on that track. I've got two truths again that I want us to focus our hearts on, and the first one is this. The Lord is patient with those who are low. The Lord is patient with those who are low. I hope I'm preaching to the right people. Have you ever been low? Maybe through your own sin, through your own weakness, through the brokenness of this world? Of course you have. Of course I have. God's people have. And Gideon has, and we have the promise of his word in Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. That's what I mean by those who are low. I want us to see the nearness of God through his patience to those who are low. As we begin to unpack the passage, these 40 verses, I want to first look at Israel's lowness brought about by their own sin and then transition to Gideon's lowness brought about by his own weakness. So Israel's lowness as a result of their sin, Gideon's lowness as a result of his weakness. We learn in verse 6 of our passage, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. One of my favorite Pixar movies is an underrated Pixar movie called A Bug's Life. You, you guys seen A Bug's Life? Kids, you've seen A Bug's Life? It's one of my favorites. I have a picture of Flick and me together at Disneyland. The movie opens with this ant colony working tirelessly in the grass, and they're not working to feed themselves. They're working to appease the wrath of Hopper and his grasshopper cronies. And so they pile their harvest high, all the while listening for the whir of grasshopper wings, which will drive them into hiding underground as the oppressors take away their bounty and fly away. It's a gripping opening scene for a kid's movie. And it's an illustration of the real-life existence of Israel I mean, the writer to the judges even uses the imagery of locusts sweeping through a valley, devouring everything in their path. This isn't Disney, folks. This is real life, and it stinks. It's terrible for God's people. This description of Israel's distress that we have in the opening verses of chapter 6 is the, is the largest, most fleshed-out description of Israel's distress we have seen so far in our study of this book. 
And it's a distress that comes at the hands of the Midianites. The Midianites were a nomadic people. They had no real home. They had no real culture to speak of. And so whenever harvest time would come for the people of Israel, from the east would come this people like locusts, and they would swoop in to take the fruit of Israel's hard work. And Israel would scatter. They would scatter to the dens and to the, to the caves to protect whatever and whomever they could from these marauders. And this happened over and over and over and over again for seven long years until finally in verse 6, they cry out, they cry out to the Lord. Now, we've asked the question before, when, when God's people cry out to the Lord, what kind of cry is it? Is it a, is it a cry of just mere pain? Is it a cry of, of true repentance? We haven't always known the answer, but the answer is clear here in chapter 6. God's people cry out, and God sends them not a deliverer, not a judge, as he has done in years past, but who does he send them? He sends them a prophet. It's like calling 911 because you've got this severe pain in your abdomen that you feel like needs to take you to the ER, and instead of a paramedic showing up at your door, you get an anatomy professor that comes to tell you what's going on in your internals. Right? That's not what I needed. I didn't need to know. I need relief. And Israel needs relief. And instead, they get a prophet. They get a prophet that calls them to remember the God who rescued them from Egypt. A God who has condemned them because of their disobedience and because of their forgetfulness. Now, why does Yahweh do this? Because God's people aren't getting it. They're just not getting it. They're not repenting. You see, there's a difference between regret and repentance. It's almost as if the Lord wants to warn them, you cannot keep calling on me forever and ever and yet ignoring me time after time after time. True repentance turns away, or at least begins to turn away from the past, not perfectly, but certainly incrementally. And Paul spoke to this, to the New Testament church in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation, whereas worldly grief produces death. So Israel here is just crying worldly grief. They just want relief. But God knows what they need. They need Him. They need Him. But they're struggling. They're struggling to understand. Gideon himself is struggling to understand. He says maybe what's the most honest statement we've heard yet in the book. Verse 13, if the Lord is with us, why has this happened to us? Has that ever been the cry of your heart? 
So Gideon is assuming that the trouble that they are experiencing is because God has abandoned them when it is exactly the opposite. Their trouble is God's work in their midst to help them see themselves, to bring them to repentance, and to ultimately return them to life, return them to Him. Do you see our God? The Lord is patient with those who are low. God's grace is seen here even in trouble. We always want the circumstances to change, but sometimes God wants the circumstances to change us, and that's what God is after. God is after a bigger prize than our comfort. He's after His glory. He's after our good. The Lord is patient with those who are low. The Lord is patient with Israel in their sin. But it's not just in Israel's sin that we see this patience. Maybe even more so, it's through the weakness that we see in this Gideon, this reluctant deliverer. And when I say weakness here, I'm speaking of of faith, a weakness of faith, a weakness of trust. We've already looked a couple weeks ago at God's use of those with weak faith in Barak. But this is a different sort of tender uh, condescension. We meet Gideon in our passage in an unlikely place. Where is he? He's in a wine press. He's beating wheat in a wine press. Now, this is not normal, folks. We don't live in an agrarian society. Maybe it's hard for us to get uh, our heads around this. A wine press was underground. It was a hollow that was carved underground. You beat wheat in the open air so that the chaff blows away, and then you're left with what you harvested. But he is hiding underground, doing something that should be done in open air air. Right off the bat, we get the hint that Gideon is not going to be this defiant, in-your-face type of guy, right? He's not out there beating, beating the wheat in the midst of all view so all these marauders can see that the harvest is ready and that they can come in and swoop and take what they want. No, Gideon's not that type of guy. He's hiding. And this is confirmed when the angel of the Lord, who we believe may very well be the Lord Jesus Himself, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord, comes to Gideon to commission him. And Gideon has this Moses moment. The Lord tells him to save His people and he's full of excuses. I'm from the weakest clan. You don't understand. I'm least in my father's house. You've obviously got the wrong guy. Now, we'll get to more what the Lord says to him in a moment, but at this point, the angel's answer is essentially, nope, this is no mistake, Gideon. You are the one. And at this point, Gideon kind of becomes the Old Testament version of Thomas, Right? Remember Thomas? 
who insisted on seeing Jesus and putting his fingers in the wounds of the risen Christ that he might believe. You see, Gideon wants to make sure that this is all legit. And so he asks for a sign, show me something. And he runs off and he gets this meal together. It's kind of odd. We think maybe he was getting an offering And he brings it back, and the angel of the Lord tells him where to put it. He tells him how to prepare it, and then swoosh, up from the rock comes this flame that engulfs the whole thing, and the angel of the Lord is gone. In the patience of God, with those who are low, with those who are weak in faith, how does the Lord respond? Gideon got his sign. And as a result, he is terrified. And he believes, and he's empowered, and he goes and does what the Lord asks him to do until verse 36, which is why I read all the way to this point, until verse 36 where he says, if you will save Israel, I'm going to go ahead and put out this fleece, Lord. And we're saying, what? If you're going to save Israel? If? The Lord has already proven himself trustworthy, Gideon, and now you want another sign. Twice. Through a fleece. Through a dew. Do you see the weakness of of Gideon? How would you respond as a mother or as a father? How does Yahweh respond? He graciously and patiently gives Gideon another sign. The Lord is patient with those who are low. Now, of course, the story of Gideon and his fleece, it's a very familiar story to us, and we've used it a lot, and we've all had our own versions of putting out fleeces, haven't we? I remember when I was a little boy, and I would out, be out back practicing basketball, and you know, you, maybe you never did this, but you, you, you line up for your three, three. Okay, if I make three in a row, then she likes me. She likes me if I make three in a row, right? And so then you shoot the ball, and you only make two, and it's this disappointment because the Lord hasn't given you a sign. We all have our little versions, as funny as they might be, of fleeces that we put out for the Lord. So what are we to make of fleeces? It's a it's a point where we should just stop for a second and figure this out. The Lord obviously deals graciously with Gideon. So does that mean we're called to put out fleeces? Does that mean that we ought to be continually putting the Lord to the test in order to be confirmed in a path of life or in a decision that we have to make? Let me say this. God's ways, God's Spirit is mysterious, and He can confirm things to your heart in a variety of powerful ways. But this passage is not a normative passage teaching us how to determine the will of God. The short answer is no. We don't need to put out fleeces. I want to read you a quote from a, from a good little book by Kevin DeYoung called Just Do Something. He says, God is not a magic eight ball. Remember those magic eight balls that you shake up? God is not a magic eight ball we shake up and peer into whenever we have a decision to make. 
He's a good God who gives us brains. He shows us the way of obedience. He invites us to take risks for Him. We know that God has a plan for our lives. That's wonderful. The problem is we think He's going to tell us that wonderful plan before it unfolds. We feel like we can know and need to know what God wants every step of the way. But such preoccupation with finding God's will, as well-intentioned as the desire may be, is more folly than freedom. The better way is the biblical way. Seek first the kingdom of God, and then trust that He will take care of our needs even before we know what they are and where we're going. In other words, we're not called to replicate Gideon. Read your Bible. Believe what it says. Pray for the Spirit's leading, and then walk in faith and walk in obedience. So that's a little tangent on fleeces. But the primary point is God's patience with those who are low. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, and we'll try to go quickly through this. You are who the Lord says you are. It's the second truth. You are who the Lord says you are. As a pastor, I've seen it plenty. And it's quite probable that many of you, some of you in this room, bear them yourselves. What are they? They are the wounds from the words of a father that have lodged in your hearts forever. Words that have affected who you are and how you live your lives and even how you view your heavenly Father. We're not studying the book of James anymore, but we were reminded in the book of James of the power of our words the destruction that they can leave in their paths. Well, this morning, I want you to hear the words that the Lord of the universe, the heavenly Father of Gideon, speaks to him and why that matters to you and I. We've already talked a bit about the story, what is listed in your Bibles as the, the call or the commission of Gideon, but we, we skipped an important introduction. Remember, Gideon is low. He's hiding He's weak in faith. He's discouraged. And the angel of the Lord comes to him with the very words of God in verse 12. And what does he say to him? The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Gideon's like looking behind him like, are you you talking to me? Is is there someone else in this wine press? that is a mighty man, because I'm hiding under here, harvesting the wheat. What's the Lord doing? Is He puffing him up in order to motivate him to get out of the hole? Is He trying to convince Gideon, Gideon, you have got the right stuff in you? No. Here's what the Lord is doing. The Lord is speaking what is. He is making it so. You see, the Lord's Word, God's Word is not like yours and mine. 
God speaks and it is. His word has the power to create. His word has the power to recreate, to speak reality into existence. And this is the marvel of Genesis 1. This is the reality of creation. He spoke and it was. His speaking was the creating. And so when he comes to Gideon and he tells Gideon, you are a mighty man of valor. He is not telling him what he hopes that he will aspire to be, the greatness that he hopes he will be. He is telling Gideon what is. What is as a result of the fact that his presence and his strength undergirds him, right? Verse 12, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And in verse 16, he tells him what he'll accomplish. It's because I will be with you, he says. And then another great phrase, in verse 34, we receive this wonderful description. The Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon. And the effect of the Lord's words upon him is clear. In the passage, he is bold in his obedience. The Lord commands him to take a stand against his family, against his community, in tearing down the idol of his father. The destruction of in-house idols is where relief begins. That's another little side tangent. That's another little sermon we could go on. Now, he's still struggling. He does it in the middle of the night. His face isn't perfect, but he is believing. He is daring to believe who the Lord says he is. And so Gideon gets a new name, Jerob Baal, meaning let Baal contend. If Baal's upset that he was attacked, he can deal with it himself. The point here, brothers and sisters, the takeaway is identity. It's that one word, identity. Who defines who you are, what you can do, what you should do? Are you going to listen to others? Are they trustworthy? Are you going to listen to your own heart? Is it trustworthy in your experience, or are you going to listen to the one who made you, who created you and recreates you? Yeah, Gideon's story is not yours. It's not mine. You have your own. I have my own. But we are all in this room undergirded by the richer, fuller revelation of the gospel. The Lord doesn't just say to you, you are mighty men and women of valor. Go serve the Lord. Now, let me tell you what he says. In Christ, you are chosen of God, holy and dearly loved. You're a child of God. You're a new creation. You're a temple of the living God. You are bought with a price. You're a slave to righteousness, not your sin. You're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You're a partaker of divine, of the divine nature. You're a friend of Jesus. You're a joint heir with Christ. You're a saint. You're a living stone that's being built into a spiritual house. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You're a citizen 
citizen of a new kingdom. And I could go on and on and on. And in fact, there's a handout on the back table that I invite you to grab of who you are. Grab a copy, fold it up, put it in your Bible, and remind yourself this week that you are who the Lord says you are. And knowing this, brothers and sisters, makes all the difference. In some ways, as I was thinking about this passage, in some ways it's a continuation of last week and of the reality of Pentecost, that the Spirit of God is now in each of us because the Lord says these things about us, and it means everything in our fight against sin in the world. It means everything in fighting discouragement. It means everything in defining priorities for our lives. If we just know and remember and believe that these things are who we are. Let me give you an example. It's even more specific. Drills down a little deeper. I can't tell you, probably my wife Anna could, how many times I don't feel like a pastor. I don't feel wise enough. I don't feel compassionate enough. I don't feel spiritual enough. I feel so far from who I know the Lord Jesus is. And sometimes it scares me to death. And yet, I can't deny that this is who the Lord has made me to be in this season of my life. I can't deny that fact. Those are the words that He has spoken over me. Not audibly, not at a verse in the Bible, but through the direction of my life and through the many circumstances in my life. And so, I press on in His grace and in His strength because I am who the Lord says I am. And I know that the Lord is patient with those who are low. I know that He loves to use the weak to show Himself strong. Brothers and sisters, in a world of voices that lie to us, that downright lie to us, hear this morning the one true voice that speaks patiently and profoundly into your weakness and need. Because it's only then that we can fulfill His mission of being salt and light and ambassadors and instruments in His hands for His glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for the gospel reality of who we are, who You have made us to be, who You have spoken us to be. For we were dead in our trespasses and sins until You called our names and raised us to life. We are not fit in and of ourselves, but we have been made something new by Your voice by your power, and we give you thanks.
Father, impress these truths, these realities onto our hearts, into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.